Welcome to this podcast from Greater Boston on WGBH2. Our podcasts are made possible through the generous contributions of WGBH viewers and listeners like you. At one time, Quincy-born John Cheever was among America's most celebrated and best-selling writers, considered alongside Salinger and Updike. But he's since faded into relative obscurity. Sure to change all that is Cheever, an exhaustingly researched biography by Blake Bailey. It recounts all of Cheever's demons, the self-loathing, alcoholism, and repressed homosexuality that made his a most complicated life. And Blake Bailey is here. Welcome. Hi, it's good to be here. So you had really unprecedented access to all of his materials. And from what I've read, there are only about 10 people who've read his 28-volume, 4-million-word journal. That's right. Um, I would say it's probably a little less than uh, 10 people, actually. Um, the original is at Harvard. Um, and I was given um, Ben Cheever, the son's uh, copy of the journal. And I immediately noticed that the pages were all jumbled. And in 1991, um, a small representative selection was published, uh, edited by Robert Gottlieb. And you can tell that there's something wrong with the chronology, because one of the entries is dated 1960, and there's a reference to Hemingway's Movable Feast, which was posthumously published in 1964. So to make a long story short, um, I painstakingly, this took years, uh, reordered the pages of the journal so that I had the only uh, properly chronological 4,300-page uh, single-space typed um, copy of Cheever's journal in existence, and then Hurricane Katrina hit. And did you find that as you're reading through this and knowing that he was repressing his homosexuality and all these other demons, things that, that left him so crippled as a functioning human being, did you find that he was completely honest in his journal? Well, I don't think that uh, completely honest is a phrase that really applies to John Cheever. Um, what you find as you read through all these many, many pages is you, you get sort of an intuitive instinct for when Cheever is trying something out for his fiction, um, when he is essentially telling the truth, and, and a crucial distinction, when the truth is turning into fiction on the page before your nose. Um, but basically, I mean, what, what is so fascinating about the journal and then synthesizing the journal into a, a biography is you have this constant uh, sort of um, a contrapunal voice between the public Cheever that you encounter through interviews and so forth and his public writings and the inner man and there could not be a bigger disparity. Well speaking of the public Cheever, in reading through I was struck by sort of a similarity that I noticed in, in Catherine Hepburn. Both Yankees, both pretended to be very modest and not concerned with celebrity or fame, right. yet both really constructed their lives to get it. Um, yes, absolutely. Uh, Cheever decided he would be a writer when he was 11 years old, and he approached his proud Yankee parents and uh, told them that he wanted to be a writer, and they sort of conferred and said, it's all right as long as you're not seeking fame or wealth. And in some ways, Cheever took that to heart. When he was first approached, for example, to be on the cover of Time magazine in 1964, he said, you know, uh, absolutely not, you know, all such publicity is vulgar. But he let him do it, right? And uh, what he was really afraid of was that, uh, you know, the Time Magazine reporters would uncover unsavory aspects of his private life. Well, that's astounding that none of that came out. Even his children 
to some degree at the time of his life didn't realize that he was a homosexual. Even his wife, who is still alive, didn't recognize that in her husband? Um, I think that if any of them uh, sort of twigged what was going on, it was probably Mary, his wife. Um, she said that as early as 1948, they went to the original Broadway production of Streetcar Named Desire, and for 50 years there was a little light motif. It was a polka tune that went along with Blanche remembering her, her suicidal gay husband, and that stuck in her head, and she immediately associated it with her husband and knew something was amiss. So is he a man who just lived in his head dealing with the self-loathing and, and wanting to be, and having all of these insecurities and wanting to be accepted and having these sort of self-imposed big conflicts with the other writers of his time, Salinger, Updike? Um, yeah, he lived in his head to, uh, to a remarkable extent. Um, you know, it, it's sort of proverbial, it's a cliché to say that an imaginative artist, particularly a fiction writer, um, sort of lives in his own world, but in Cheever's case, that was, uh, that was, that was very much so. Um, to the extent that, you know, people around him were sort of uh, abstractions and, and he expected them to behave in a way a fictional character is supposed to behave, that is according to his whims, whatever they may be. And when people didn't conform to those expectations, Cheever was dismayed and profoundly disappointed. He spent six months on the New York Times bestseller list in the late 1970s. Yet he has faded into relative obscurity. He's not celebrated anymore. Is that just the way of most authors? Because you did the same thing for Richard Yates. You wrote his biography. And of course, we've all been reminded again of who he is by the film Revolutionary Road. But is this just the way it works for writers? Um, the problem with Cheever is that um, he changed, he evolved as a writer so much uh, over the course of his career. If you take his five or six greatest stories, and when I say the five or six greatest Cheever stories, I mean the five or six greatest American stories of the post-war era, they're all different. I'll just give you two examples. His first really great story is The Enormous Radio in 1947. It's about a radio that broadcasts the private go sorted goings on in various rooms in an apartment, in a Manhattan apartment house. Um, it's very surreal. It seems to be influenced by Kafka, if anybody. Uh, his, uh, n another great story is Goodbye, My Brother, published four years later, and it's totally different. It's straightforward realism, though technically intricate in the extreme. Academics, and they're the ones who perpetuate literary reputations, expect for uh, a writer to behave and uh, to, to be like Hemingway and be like Fitzgerald. There is no single quintessential Cheever story, but they're all delightful and they're all the best or masterpieces. Updike criticized you a little bit in The New Yorker. Not that you should pay attention to critics, but for, for laying out all of the demons. And it's <coughs> dark. It's, it's really, really, really tough to read. Did you have any qualms about laying all that out? Um, no, I did not. Um, I don't believe in this nonsense about pathography, that there's something unseemly about discussing uh, the private life of your subject, especially if your subject's a writer. Um, you know, if you tell, if you show the whole man, then, you know, let the cards fall. Uh, eventually, I think Cheever comes out as sympathetic in my book. I'm glad you brought up the Updike review. First of all, Jeffrey Wolf reviews my book on the cover of the New York Times Book Review this Sunday, and it is an unqualified rave. Um, Updike had, um, I think, a kind of agenda. If you want me to discuss that, I can do so briefly. 
but we're actually we're just about out of time. So, but so people have to read more um, in the in the right. review, and of course the, the book is absolutely fantastic. And congratulations for bringing him back into the, the the realm again too. So the book is Cheever, and thank you for coming. It, it was it was great. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this podcast. We invite you to watch Greater Boston weeknights on WGBH2 at 7 p.m. and again at midnight. The program is also available through Comcast On Demand.